0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my name's Richard Moss, and I make a podcast called The Life and Times of Video Games. It's a narrative and documentary-style show about games' history and how the medium has evolved over time. Each episode or bonus interview soundbite delves into some aspect of the ups and downs of the industry all the design, development, and legacy of the best or most interesting games ever made. It's all carefully edited, complete with original music and sound design, and a mix of interviews and deep research. All set up to tell you a great story about the secret worlds behind, all within, video games. I hope you enjoy the show. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. I nearly worked on a RoboCop game.
1: Oh, like an actual licensed game? Yeah,
0: Yeah, I was a uh, newly director for that. It was an interesting thing, but it was just also interesting to hear how much, given the context, like RoboCop was being approached as a almost a risky property, because it's like, how does a RoboCop work today? And sort of the one of the few ways in which to make RoboCop work today is embedding him in a more nostalgic context and i'm wondering how the movie is going to handle that because they're doing robocop returns and a uh invincible white policeman shooting people uh, (laughs) based off of computer programming and ai telling him that they're bad there's a lot of ways it can go
1: What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another episode of Arcast Mini. This is Arcast Mini number 42. I am your host, David Gilton, and with me is a very special guest. Uh, so, with me here is Zelavier Delson Jr. of Strange Scaffolds. So how's it going there, Zelavier?
0: Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? All right, considering the state of the world that we're in. Um, a little bit odd time to be, uh, to be hashtag making content. Yeah, yeah, I guess we can make that the hashtag for sure. (laughs) 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 To try
1: to, like, I guess, like, distract ourselves a little bit because, I mean, I'm sure, like, as, as, uh, as, like, the same thing for you, I mean, like, a lot of, like, what's going on in the world right now with the, you know, with the protests and all that, it's just kind of, like, kind of taking over pretty much our consciousness, so... Uh, at the very least, uh, we can go into like video games and into like accomplishments, uh, certainly that you've made so far, and uh, what you have coming out, which is very exciting. To like distract us from all that at the moment, so, <laughs> um, so I figure uh, we'll actually start off uh, from from like the very beginning, actually, with you. So, uh, what were like the games that you played growing up that influenced your approach to game design?
0: A really diverse mix of stuff. I stumbled on the quote-unquote abandonware community pretty pretty early before I realized that a lot of the abandonware Is actually just old games that people ripped from GOG and stuck on a website that looks like it was from the 90s. Yeah. (laughs) So I have this balance of, you know, playing big budget stuff uh, as well as getting this pretty precise hit of unusual influences based off of just a patchwork or whatever I could find. I'm as influenced by, or more so influenced by, uh, the LucasArts shooter Outlaw. Hmm. than I am, you know, Halo. So intentionally building up a diverse experience of what games can be and what they can mean uh, was very important to me from an early age. Uh, And I'm really glad, especially now with how many different things I work on and, and how many capacities I exist as a creator. I'm now extremely thankful that I had that focus so early yeah totally.
1: I mean, like that certainly seems to reflect with like a lot of your early work, which I had to look into, and I was just blown away with like you know, just how creative uh that they are and uh, you know very creative titles as well. So uh, you previously worked on games such as Mr. Bucket told me to, Hypnospace Outlaw
0: and an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. <laughs> so yeah, those 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 are some of the most recent ones too. <laughs> when you go back really, really early, I'll hail the spider God, my my first game ever was super influenced by Planescape Torment. I had just finished playing Planescape Torment. It blew my mind. And the idea of what a narrative can be and how it can be structured, it planted the seeds that in many ways I'm still following today in terms of questioning, what does it mean to influence a player? What does it mean to have a player journey? What does it mean to allow the someone's progression through a story to be influenced not by you know selecting something on a level select screen or by putting points into a charisma tree but in uh reflecting back everything that they do and the attitudes they bring to the world that's Mm. still something i do professionally today it's wild yeah, I mean
1: like, that's definitely building on like the fact that you are um, that you know that you are like a narrative designer, really, like through um, through like a lot of your games, and certainly like uh, at least like kind of like telling the stories like in these games that uh, are otherwise like very just kind of like out there ideas for sure, like even in the in the indie gaming scene. Uh, so, like, what can you tell us? I guess like as far as like you know, again, like some of the influences, I guess, with like say like Mister Bucket told me to because I know that's like part of the um, I think it's called like the Dread
0: X Collection, is that right? Yep, the Dread X Collection. I have over time, especially coming into games, already questioning how can we make games better, faster, and cheaper. Um, what does the structure of a game fundamentally look like? What does it need to look like? What can it look like? What spaces aren't being explored? I've been fascinated by this idea of micro projects, basically. Given how much of games are built on potentially reusable technology and assets um, and all of these resources that can be used again and again to bring other visions to life, uh, I've been asking this question around saying, hey, like, what does a $1,000 game look like? What does a $5,000 game look like? What does a $10,000 game look like? What does it mean to make a game in like a month and release it? Because most of the time when I see people talk about games, they're doing the three plus year moonshot mortgaging their homes and especially if you come from a marginalized background hmm. that sim that's that level of risk is simply it's not just unsustainable it is deeply dangerous yeah so uh and a bunch of people told me that like it wasn't possible to make a game like that and in various ways i've been kind of proving them wrong and so when dread x uh, dread xp the, the uh horror game website came along and said hey we want to try something new in games, bringing together 10 people with 10 different influences to make 10 different equivalents of PT. Uh, PT was the, is short for playable teaser, and it was what Hideo Kojima put out as sort of a uh, way to introduce people to the world and visuals and perspective of the upcoming Silent Hill game he was going, going to make at the time. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I, I, took, I took some time to think. I said yes immediately because, of course, the, the, the perspective so reflects my own. I was so excited to see another uh, group of people say, hey, if we bring 10 people into, the, into a room, give them a bit of money to make their own games, come back together, they still own the rights to those games, those games are made in basically seven days, what happens? How does that change even the way games can be made going in the future? So it's
1: kind of like a like like a game jam collection in a lot of ways, or like um, I guess like if you think of
0: like the way that the animatrix was put together, you know. But like as PT, I guess I, I would compare. It, yeah, I would compare it more to an anthology than to a game jam collection because a lot of game jams um, focus on, hey, uh, here's a random theme. Let's try to find some way to fill it as soon as possible, and you can get incredible, brilliant things out of that. But a game jam also carries this connotation of slapdash. Um, put togetherness and what you see in all the games and uh the dread x collection uh i'm a little bit biased of course saying this but the clarity of those visions and the complexity and completeness that they have cut being presented forward brought to the table i made a game called mr bucket told me to for that collection it is a full-on light survival game uh combined with a psychological thriller that forces you to sacrifice your imaginary friends on the behalf of essentially uh a wilson talking about castaway wilson that wants you to suffer and die (laughs) it's an out there idea but brought to life in a form that is incredibly complete within the time um and could be easily expanded into something else or just played standalone so the idea of these standalone things being brought together was immensely compelling and so Having never seen Castaway, having the idea of, hey, what if Wilson, this cultural icon, wanted you to suffer? Uh, and then having the opportunity to put that together in a game and get paid for it and still retain, you know, rights and all of these other important things for the protection of creators going forward. It just made a whole bunch of sense. So now I'm sitting here having made this game, having a bunch of content creators create, just doing a whole bunch of stuff around the game. People in their chats saying, hey, when you get play Mr. Bucket? The amount of attention that this game has garnered already is immensely comforting. Not just because you know it's flattering to see that people like the creative vision that you're putting out, um, but also everything I've been saying for years about creating things under limitations, creating things under restrictions, questioning what it mean what it means to make a video game and make a video game good. Mm-hmm. how how what what are ways we can bring that together So do you think that that's a um possibly like a way I guess to
1: get uh maybe like game developers who are say like more strapped for cash I guess than your average indie developer um to kind of like get out there have their work kind of get out there have people
0: like experience what they're what they're capable of and uh, hopefully grow from that There is the uh unspoken expectation especially in indie games that the titles that you're making that for something to be significant it needs to be a blank amount of hours, or it needs to have spent this many years on it, or you must have spent this much money on it, or even worse, you must have risked this nebulous level of personal safety to have brought it into being to be a quote-unquote real indie. So it's like a percentage of like suffering that has to be like attached to it, basically. <laughs> exactly. Have you reached the suffering threshold? If not, go back. <laughs> right. um, and even when you look at indie games, the most infamous example is like, E.T., which I believe was made in three days. Uh, Yeah, very close to that. I think
1: it was, it might be like a few weeks, actually, if you're talking about the Atari game.
0: Yeah. So if you look at retro games, there is this really grand tradition of people making, you know, put aside from E.T., people (laughs) making things in what now seem like absurdly low amounts of time and going on to massively impact um, an entire culture. Uh, Adventure made basically by... One guy again on the Atari. We talk now about how Super Breakout was not not Super Breakout. Breakout was made by us, uh, wasn't it, Steve Wozniak? I believe so. Or at least the the boards were optimized by him. People creating things under very tight constraints, very quickly, or with a limited longevity, and just continuing to put new visions out into the world and growing very rapidly is a model that has largely been abandoned or at least has had a significantly reduced desirability in the culture surrounding video games. And I think that's a shame because if we give ourselves the freedom for games to exist on as many scales as possible, you not only get people producing more things, growing faster because they're bringing th- they're making things, bringing them into the world and putting their visions out there and growing audiences. But you also a new fundamental freedom for how games can exist. I mean, we still have games today anyway. They're like released,
1: like, uh, so like Axiom Verge, for example, uh, or Mm -hmm. like Dustin and Lisey and Tail. They're made uh, primarily by one person, really. Um, So do you not, I guess, like see that as... um, I guess, as as like a model that's like sustainable in today's gaming, uh, game design environment? Or is that just kind of meant the, I I guess, like the uh, way, at least anyway, with like the DreadX collection, just kind of like a way to uh, hopefully circumvent that and kind of make it easier for those people who might see that path as being the only way for them.
0: I think that both axes are valid, but an Axiom Verge is obviously spoken about in a different way than, say, a game that someone takes, you know, a couple of months to make. Now that game that takes a couple of months to make, depending on what it is, the direction going into all of these tangible and intangible factors could blow your mind. But because of the culture that we are sort of actively cultivating day by day in video games, it is not being recognized on the same level. Just to continue using Axiom Verge, it is an immense creative achievement. Uh, It is good as heck. Uh, And it does genuinely special new things in games. And recognizing both that and something like the Dread X collection as valid paths for what game production can look like. You can spend five years or you can put out a game that you made in a month that you made good and that you put out into the world and you can move on to the next one, the next one, the next one. I think both are valid avenues. Just one isn't being explored because survivor's bias shows us that a game like Axiom Verge kind of just gets held up as the only platonic ideal.
1: Is that more on the media, like in terms of like the media, like telling the story of like the game developers behind these games? And I guess like with, you know, again, with the games like Axiom Verge, for example, as like, you know, having been worked on, I think I think that was worked on for like four or five years or something like that, you know, as being like this, like pinnacle of achievement, basically for like a single person to like make a game. Do you feel like it's just because of it's just kind of like the
0: sexiness, I guess, of the story behind that, like from like the media standpoint? I mean, you can trace back that idea back to, Indie Game, the movie, and beyond. We are compelled by the idea of singular creative voices overcoming difficulty to achieve a stellar creative goal. Mm -hmm. The projects shown in Indie Game, the movie, Fez, Braid, Super Meat Boy, those are all incredibly valid and impressive creative achievements. Um, They deserve every bit of the press they got. But when you hear enough of those stories, you do sort of get this entrenched cultural attitude over time of what is valid what is the way like a jadedness not a jadedness but the idea of what a valid game looks like becomes set in stone mm. so i do a lot of mentorship and talking to students especially these days or i did before covid turned a lot of the <laughs> people's lives upside the places down. where i would talk to those people yeah shut that those down but yeah when i was would go to comic-con and i was in the uh professional room, talking to people who wanted to get into games um, from the perspective of someone who's a narrative and also now heading up a studio, a whole lot of the stuff I had to do was deprogramming people who had clearly had uh, a creative drive and achievements and all these different things, but they were trying to set themselves up to do the two, three, four, five year moonshot when they could have been with their skills, with their perspective, they could be making games right now, putting them into the world that people would love. But the inherent anxiety of, if I don't spend three years on it, does it matter? If I don't spend three years on it, is it going to make an impact? Can it sell? Can it sustain me and my family? All of those things kept them from taking even the first step. So as much as there are significant arguments for when you can pack in the polish and the quality, and when all the stars align, and you can make a Cuphead or a Super Meat Boy, or a Axiom Verge, dang, you're in a stellar place. right? <laughs> but the idea of anything outside of home runs, singles, doubles, triples, that space I don't see being explored. Uh, or I don't see being explored in nearly to nearly the same degree. And as a result, you do get a built-up image of what is a game? A game is this. So, like within the indie gaming community, because
1: I, you know, I never really kind of got into this with uh, the number of indie devs who I've talked to over the years. But is there sort of like a viewpoint as far as like like levels of indie devs, as far as like there being kind of like the AAA space of indies, like with. Um... I know with Kiji and Afune, for example, um, and then like you go down to like the double A's, and then maybe like the single A's. uh, As far as like people just kind of like trying to break out into the scene and just trying to make something cool for people to notice, Um, is
0: there that kind of like sentiment you feel like within the community? I think like any other creative industry, there are different perspectives and projects that are held in different regards. For example, and a lot of it is based around uh, survivor bias. The part of the reason I have the current perspective I do is. One, I researched a bunch of retro games and saw, oh, this was made in a year and it changed the way most people see games. If that was if that was the story behind it today, here's a game that, you know, a couple of people made in a year that might not have the same impact. It might inherently be seen as lesser because it doesn't have the same level of glory to its storytelling. Right. It it doesn't have the same sexy story. Right. But aside from that, games is like any other medium. People existing on entirely different scales, communities ranging from tens of people to hundreds, perhaps thousands that never get exposure to each other. It's one of the incredible things about Steam. You can look at a game that you have never even heard of and have the shocking realization that, oh, this game has been played by hundreds of thousands of people but I've never even heard of it because it's so outside of my own field. I guess too, like it kind of goes back as well with like the
1: media and like whether they decide to like cover or not. And like whether there's like, I guess like a story that they feel like that they can tell that's like surrounding that game in some way.
0: Or even just a matter of timing. Maybe the story just doesn't get told because the message got lost on a certain day or there was a different thing to report on, or there's a news beat for a, a larger game that kind of sucks the air out of the room. There's a thousand reasons that a game cannot or does not get covered so it seems logical that the more games you make the more opportunities you have to break through that inherent wall against you the law of averages yeah (laughs) it's it's law of averages and to be frank as a creator especially when i look at other mediums and see oh blank wrote however many books before they did well steven spielberg's first movies you probably have never even heard of. Martin Scorsese's first movies you probably haven't even heard of, but they existed in industries that allowed them to make the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. That isn't possible in games when you're spending perhaps five plus years of your life to build, bring a creative vision to being. And because of the luck of the draw, no one ever sees it. And part of the reason I have this perspective is not just the research from older games, not just from personal experience now as a game developer, it's because part of my career, is that I was a columnist for PC Gamer Magazine. Hmm. I spent two years as their only print columnist writing a column called Inside Development. And every month, I would talk to a whole bunch of independent and AAA developers, people from all across the spectrum, people who made games years ago, some of your favorite uh, retro names. And I simply asked them, hey, how do dialogue systems work? How do cameras work? How does lighting work? These fundamental things we take for granted in games, what does it take for them to actually be made? It turns out it's all terrifying and it's all hard. And especially when you are exposed for two years to the cumulative stories of all of the people who can't speak otherwise for legal reasons or because they aren't going to get noticed or heard. When you just get, when you are just, when you just hear over and over again for two years. How games come to be, when they don't come to be, what are the simple obstacles that prevent them from being made in the first place, it radically changes your perspective. I would probably have a different perspective on game development if I hadn't had that experience. But having heard those stories, having heard so much heartbreak that, again, could not be legally shared or could not be personally shared or would affect someone's career if it was uh, turned into a headline, I cannot in good conscience recommend production cycles or attitudes towards development that don't give people as many chances to succeed and have a sustainable, successful career as possible. Which means making games better, faster, and cheaper.
1: Another game that you're actually working on right now, which got a lot of people's attention, is Skatebird. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're helping make this game called Skatebird, which is essentially a uh, Tony Hawk's pro skater, but with birds on skateboards. Um, so is this meant to simply be straight parody,
0: or is there more that people may be missing? It is a legitimate, really dang good skateboarding game. We just happened to stick a bird on a skateboard, and it turns out when you do that, you have a cute little bird on a skateboard you can turn a desk or a cubicle into a skate park. (laughs) And that is a perspective that as much as you love Tony Hawk, or even if you play the new Tony Hawk remaster that comes out uh, this year, that's an experience you weren't going to get playing Tony Hawk. Working on this game, I went actually back through, I'm not sure if this counts as retro, but I went through and I played Tony Hawk from Tony Hawk 2 on the PS1 to Tony Hawk Underground 2. It is stunning to see, first of all, what they accomplished at that time, especially if you know how skate games are made. Spoiler: making a skate game is absurd. I don't know how <laughs> anyone would ever do it. Well, I mean, it's funny actually because we, we, you know, because we did a Zoom
1: call actually where it was you, me, some other people, but also my friend Josh Sway was there too, and he mm-hmm. helped work on some of those later Tony Hawk games. And obviously, like the way that he made the Tony Hawk games back then is going to be a lot different than how you're making Skaper now, you
0: know? Yeah, and, and it's wild how. Things that were easy back then are now harder now, or things that are easy now or harder back then. There's all these really intriguing stratifications that are part of why learning about the way the sausage is made in terms of game development is exciting. But yeah, Skatebird is a fully fledged skateboarding game with a cute little bird on a board doing its best, uh, with a story <laughs> mode and everything. And if any, and if looking at my previous work, from Mister Bucket told me to to. Airport for Aliens, currently run by dogs, to even We Are the Caretakers, which is an Afrofuturist sci-fi management RPG that I'm the narrative lead on. It is apparent that my passion, as far as uh, creative sensibilities, is to take things in absurd packages, take things that look unlikely or impossible, and make them possible. And I am so grateful to be working with collaborators who uh enable that madness uh (laughs) as well as carry a little bit of that madness themselves totally yeah
1: and also like i couldn't help but like think too, like when you mentioned as far as like uh, basically turning like your work desk for example into like a skate park um i can't help but think of uh there was like the tony hawk uh kind of like parody game uh, that was uh, done by disney i believe like where it was like toy story characters and i think like simba was part of it too like all these other characters from disney yeah
0: disney's extreme skate adventure
1: I think that's what, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. It has, like, small kids, like, as characters as well, but, like, also just random Disney characters. So um, was that at all, like, an influence with Skatebird?
0: No. Uh, It is interesting, though, when we talk about things like parody, right? How do we view games that are even similar, for example, to uh, our genre ideals but do not look the same? Disney's extreme, Extreme Skate Adventure, as weird as it looks uses the exact same engine as Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4. It is Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4, but they stuck Buzz Lightyear inside of it. Right. (laughs) Is that a parody? I'm not sure, but I think that if we open up the boundary of what it means for a game to be valid, whether it looks weird or whether it uh, is weird or whether it does not match our expectations of what something in this form should look like, we get all of these strange opportunities, as well as legitimate opportunities to look at how this has actually been done in the past. Right. Uh, and it is con- continues to be done today in forms that otherwise wouldn't uh, be seen. Would that be more up
1: to the gaming public, like gaming fans, like just gamers in general to kind of like, I guess, like decide that whether something's like too odd to like even approach or whether it's just odd enough, like where when they start playing it, they're like, oh, this is like one of my favorite games ever.
0: There's a lot of factors there, uh, which again, makes the need to have as many voices in games and have as many chances for those voices to rise to the top. Mm. It makes that more important than ever, because if we do have those voices making the weirder things, the more quote unquote normal things, continually pushing the boundary of what exists in games, we get further and further experience of what what does the market accommodate? Let's be honest. Like, Let's just talk about brass tacks economics. What do people buy? What will people buy? Up until Undertale came out, I think there's a lot of people who would have said, is a black and white RPG or is a partially black and white art style RPG made in MS Paint, is that going to be (laughs) one of the most influential RPGs of the past decades? Maybe not. But now that that exists, we have an opportunity to examine that, learn from it make things that are totally different, make things that are inspired by it, creative art builds on itself. And for that building process to occur, everywhere from plays to movies to music to literature, we have to have the foundation to build upon in the first place, which means more things, weirder things, more traditional things, more coverage of different things, the PS1 games that weren't played, like emulation and dubious ways of playing them, make it possible for designers today to play those games again. My personal passion has been going through the sixth generation of games all over again, playing things from the original Xbox, from the GameCube, and from the PS2, and seeing how many wild and forward-thinking designs existed at the time. They feel like they could be, with maybe a spit of polish, oh, this game that got ignored at the time is the direct ancestor of the the most popular games today. And that just doesn't exist if we aren't aware of them. Building up awareness is something that all of us work towards every day as we continue to talk about games, as we continue to look for games outside of the latest headlines. And that is one of the reasons I'm excited to be in this space, because it feels so, to the degree to which we have explored it, there's still so much to explore, so much to unravel and to continue Unraveling for the next generation of designers. Well, that
1: generation certainly lends itself to like a lot of, um, I don't know, just a lot of experimentation, really, and I feel like you know, especially the Dreamcast. Anyway, like the Dreamcast is full mm-hmm. of like very experimental games that just wouldn't. I don't know I feel like i have really seen like the light of the day in like a lot of like modern consoles. Really, um,
0: it's just like too weird. Dreamcast, I think, was my first console. Oh, really? Yeah, it, it is. You started off right. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is incredible to grow up with that influence, right when. The very first, your very first experience with an open world game is spending literal hours opening and closing uh, sh- uh, cabinets in uh, Shenmue. Yeah. <laughs> it breaks your brain a little bit. Totally. And the more we can make games of all eras accessible and playable today, this is one reason I massively support and appreciate uh, the push of Microsoft to make the Xbox platform Uh, more and more backwards compatible, the more opportunity we have to grow. Because quite simply, our opportunity, our, sorry, our history is not being continually erased if that occurs. So it's kind of looking back to look
1: forward, basically, yeah.
0: Yeah, and without it, I mean, even going back to the NES, SNES days and the uh, jump between generations, the tidal wave of games that get left behind every generation and then the cumulative effect the exponential effect as that happens as the next console comes out as the next console comes out as the next console comes out as PC drivers change and make them inaccessible it means that the game that could inspire someone's entire career potentially already exists and is simply not available that that person's career won't exist because that game doesn't exist that spark that lights a fire and i'm passionate to see that change mm so just
1: to kind of go back to uh, Skateboard real quick, uh, you mentioned before about like, the story mode that you're working on for that, which mm-hmm. uh, definitely has me very intrigued. Um, now, obviously, you can't like say too much about it, but what can you
0: tell us about the story mode for Skateboard? I can say it's deeply influenced by the Tony Hawk games, obviously, when they started to get story modes. Mm. I think it was Underground, right? I think starting with 4, you started to get um, stories and little characters existing in the open world that you would accept quests from and then do the quests and you'd have a neat little dialogue and things change in the level and so on. So on that level, uh, Tony uh, Skatebird is inspired by those sorts of influences and the narrative perspective of having a deeply kind perspective on what it means to uh, pursue a goal you are a bird on a skateboard. You are not positioned for <laughs> uh, <laughs> success necessarily, but you keep trying. You build relationships with other people. You find ways to continually do better and be better. And uh, it feels real good to be making a game that carries that message. That is inherently about falling off of a board, doing a little birdie scream, getting right back <laughs> on it and doing your best. Uh, because it's what we do as creators every day. Totally. Yeah, it's very relatable in that sense, for sure. Hashtag relatable.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So I guess to transition from that then, uh, and there's like, uh, you know, this is basically the last question I have for you. As a black game designer yourself, how do you feel the games that you've worked
0: on represent you and your voice? As a black game designer who has continued to exist and to move, to to quote unquote, move up through the medium, which is uh, a rare and privileged position, which I'm very thankful for, it becomes more and more... How do I put this? It becomes more and more apparent that the way to continue existing is to be seen outside of the bounds of your color. Mm. I, I encountered this a lot as a journalist as well. If you are the journalist who's always the black journalist writing about black games or intersections with race or so on, you can get in through doors that might otherwise be closed because you can be like, hey, I know about this because I've written about this before. Also, I'm black. Please, please let me write about this important topic. Like the token writer in that sense, yeah. You will get get pigeonholed. It will get hard to address anything outside of that. And when you need to go for a staff position, having an army of black articles and not being the person who was put in a position to cover the latest update on Fortnite, for example, Mm -hmm. it takes away your mobility in some regards. So over time, I'd say with my race and even with my faith as a Christian, I have taken significant steps to self-express through worlds that have nothing to do with me. Mm. But I've also made a considered asserted effort over time to be in positions where I can be more than the uh, creator of color or the creator of faith. And it's part of the reason I'm so thankful to have worked on things like hypnospace outlaw, and Skatebird games of those scales that have nothing to do with my color. It's just the fact that I do really, really good work and I'm working on yet another wild thing and making it both feasible and extremely good with extremely good teams, either behind me or working alongside me. That personally allows me to feel like I have more of of a voice to even address topics of race or faith or things that are personally relevant to my identity. Because if I can exist outside of it, then i can express inside of it even more clearly relatably and nuancedly i want to find another last word with Lee, but it's it's hard to think of one yeah <laughs> totally totally um i mean yeah, i i guess that's like a good
1: um just like life lesson i guess in general for anyone like looking to uh just kind of like expand on whatever career path that they go on really is to kind of like show that you're capable of everything right from the get-go. And then when, you know, when slash, if you do move up, then you can kind of get more into the weeds and almost like kind of show that you're, that, you know, they obviously you have like a specialization in something, but other people already know that you're capable of everything else. Yeah,
0: it, it is good to be. One thing I, I laser focused on early in my career was to be as broad as possible. So after making some twine stuff with I'll hail the spider, God and screw and dad and so on, so on. The next game I worked on was actually a immersive sim take on Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Slayer Shock. (laughs) I loved playing it. It had nothing to do with my race. I can see in the seeds of making that game themes and ideas and uh, design principles that I still follow today. And it's also just felt real dang good. I I got to exist. I got to just be a creator and that it turns out when you have nuanced capability and nuanced perspectives and you speak to something that doesn't seem like that same ability as a, as a parent, it means you can actually bring more depth to material. It, it it creates a sense of faith in your ability to get stuff done. And sometimes that faith is what keeps you going when you're making a video game. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense.
1: Uh, all right. Zalavier, thank you very much for uh, for sharing all that and just being like part of the show. Honestly, it was a real pleasure to, to speak with you. Uh, where can people go in order to find you online? So
0: I'm Oliver Nelson Jr. You can find me at at ritnelson on Twitter. Uh, I have a Patreon uh, for an airport feelings currently run by dogs, where you can get your dog added to the files of the game before it launches. And when events are a thing again, <laughs> uh, I, I go to game events. Feel free to say hi.
1: Totally, yeah. We'll have to like grab like a beer sometime and like you know actually be able to talk in person because it, it was an absolute pleasure like, to be able to speak with you during like the Zoom calls that we've had and um, mm. yeah, it's, it's just too bad obviously with the state of the world like how how you know how we can't get together in that sense. But you know, hopefully when things uh, normalize uh, later, we'll be able to do that. If you'd like to send us any feedback, opinions, retro games, or topics for us to cover, or anything at all, really, you can email us at rcast at retrozap.com And be sure to check out RetroZap.com for all sorts of other amazing podcasts. It's your home away from home if you're crazy about Star Wars, Animaniacs, or pop culture in general. There's also us with Rcast, so be sure to find us on iTunes to subscribe, give us five stars, and tell your neighbors. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. So there's absolutely no reason to not follow another retro gaming podcast. And uh, if you want to find Arcast on Twitter, we are at ARC Podcast. Same thing with Facebook, facebook.com slash ARC Podcast. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Guilty Man. And yeah, that is Arcast Mini number 42 in the books. And until next time, keep it retro. He often perches on a dead branch over a stream. He's watching for fish. If he has no luck at one watch post, he will fly to another watching for
0: this. He's watching for this. What's up, everybody? My name's Garrett Morlang. Hey, everybody. I'm JJ Prudem. And we are
1: the Super Gamer Boys.
0: And we are the preeminent video game podcast in the entire
1: world. We're trying to take over the world with all of our comedy, with news and whatnot, and we are so excited to be members of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. Yes, we bring you uh, all the news you want to know every week. We bring you movie reviews, game reviews. Uh, and all the goofs you want to hear. So come check us out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast
0: service. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.